Welcome to Like a Bigfoot Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, we are talking with elite athlete, uh, amazing ultra endurance racer, um, and someone who just got eighth place male at the Western States 100. We are sitting down. We're talking with Jeff Colt. Uh, he's a Colorado athlete lives in Carbondale and just trains in the mountains. Like if you're out in that general area of Colorado, you're probably going to see him just sprint by. I'm imagining you see him for a second and then there's just like a cloud of dust that like gets kicked up. But, uh, but yeah, Jeff is an incredible runner. Uh, he just finished, I mean, just as an example here, he just finished Western States in 15 hours and 42 minutes, which is a hundred miles in less than 16 hours. And he was up there racing the whole entire time. Uh, the episode is going to kind of talk about what it is like to be in the front pack in one of the biggest and fastest 100 mile milers, uh, in the United States. So, um, yeah. And then we actually get into a little bit of uh, some of the other things Jeff does, uh, alpine ski racing. Uh, we talk about his time as a ski jumper when he was a younger gentleman, uh, which I was super excited about because I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity to talk to someone who was a ski jumper. So um, I found that endlessly fascinating. Um, but I just I wanted to bring up this idea really quick in the intro. Um, when I've talked to elite ultra runners i think there's something different um from these elite ultra runners versus some of the other kind of pro athletes i've had a chance to talk to um and that's this like you see this intensity of training this intensity of focus and yet you find this commonality amongst everybody whether someone's an elite ultra runner or middle of the pack or back of the pack you find this absolute love for being outside and you find this love for being in the mountains and being covered in dirt and sweat and blood and stuff like that you know you find this love of you know kind of that physicality that comes from this sport and i just think that's really cool because you know you think of that elite athletes might not be going through the same pain as you are during an ultra and yet you find out like of course they go through everything everyone else does stomach troubles um muscle extreme muscle soreness and things like that so uh you know these moments of self-doubt and then you get to talk to them and you get to figure out like what pulls them out of it um so maybe we can apply it to our own challenges, you know? Uh, and I think that's really cool. And I totally took that away from this conversation with Jeff. Um, but yeah, let's get right into it. This is Like a Bigfoot podcast number 344 with Jeff Colt. All right. Uh, today, I am honored to be joined by Jeff Colt, fresh off of Western States, like not even a week removed at this point. Um, I'm yeah. not sure when the episode will come out, but when we're recording this, we're like six days out and uh, you had an amazing race, dude. Like I am mind blown by how fast you are and just also completely honored to have you on the podcast. So welcome, man. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate you having me on. And yeah, it feels like it was both really long ago and also I'm like still totally in it. <laughs> yeah. You were just telling me you're finally at the point where you can outrun a car across the street, like as you're crossing the street. So congratulations. Yeah, I can like go from uh, just a shuffle step to like a shuffle jog <laughs> across the street in, in time. Um, so little wins, little victories as, a, as I move toward recovering from the race here. Yeah. I want to start here. I want to start with this because I was kind of following along, uh, following your journey uh, throughout the race. And I have to ask you about your crew and specifically your crew, like photo bombing the live stream. Can you talk about that a little bit? I didn't learn about that till after the race, but uh, yeah, I've got, um, you know, this is my second year going out to Western States. And the first year I like had a number of folks reach out expressing interest in crewing and yeah. wanting to be a part of it. And in my mind, it just started to like stress me out. And I was like, 
I like, I have to say no to people. Like, I don't want to say no, but like realistically having a crew of more than like four to six people just kind of gets chaotic. And yeah. everyone last year had such a fun time that I kind of was like, you know what? Like, screw it. Like, let's just say yes. And uh, I think I ended up with like somewhere between like 15 or 16 people. On that <laughs> year. It was definitely high energy. Uh, a good bit of my family came out, some friends came out and then some different uh, brand representatives were there helping. And yeah, it sounds like there was just like the right amount of tomfoolery for uh, a group of like 15 people standing around all day when they only actually got to spend about five minutes interacting with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, playing, uh, playing around with the live stream. There was a, a great, uh, piggyback scenario where, uh, two of my crew were like trying to like piggyback and like get, get on the live stream behind, uh, <laughs> Zach Mary and talking. That's amazing, man. And as you were explaining that story, my own kids were photo bombing me in this, uh, asking if they could have a snack. So, um, snack regimen is key snack yeah. regimen, man. Yeah, totally. I know that's the, like a lesson from ultra running that my kids are resistant to where I'm like, you have to eat, like eat food and then you don't crash, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think Katie Scheid was the first person I heard coin this, but like ultra marathons are just long distance eating competitions. Uh, and like, perfect it is the the simple truth of what it means to run 100 miles is like you can run as fast as you want, but if you can't eat, you're yeah. not going to make it. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I kind of noticed just following your journey and stuff, and we can get into more of like the race details eventually, but. Um, the aid stations for the elite runners it's just like you have it down man like you're it's almost like you don't even stop moving which was pretty wild to see you know because any time in the aid station is if you're stopped like you're losing like literally losing time in that point but you're like running through people are like dumping water on you and all this like can you just kind of like talk like what was like a plan of attack there yeah so last year, Western States, I think I had 46 minutes of stoppage time. Yeah. There's like 15 aid stations that kind of like works out to likely, you know, it's not three minutes in aid station. It's likely like a couple seconds at some aid stations and then like some five or six minute breaks. And as I looked at this year, like I really wanted to compete with the, the top folks in the race and I wanted to try to win the race. And I knew that that was going to have to radically change. So like I was looking through my email that I sent to my crew last year that was like, please bring a chair, please bring these like comfortable things that like we should consider yeah, uh, yeah. having at the aid station. And this year I was like, there's no chair. Like no, we can't have a chair there. There's no time to sit. Um, I My goal was to cut my aid station time down to 15 minutes. So really that's accounting for an aid station in the canyons probably or robinson flat that first aid station uh one at el dorado creek where like i imagined i would need a little bit more water or jump in the creek um michigan bluff forest hill uh green gate slash rockachucky and then like kind of that's it like yeah. those are like the main areas i expected to stop for like more than a minute yeah um but my crew was telling me afterwards, apparently Michigan Bluff, like I was there for maybe 40 seconds. Yeah. And that's like coming in, vest off, new bottles. Like uh, with the number of people I had on my crew, I was able to give everyone, you know, nicknames and specific roles. So you know, my brother-in-law, Matt, was specifically sun sunglasses and sunscreen. <laughs> um, my friend Drew was just like, real food in hand in front of me, yeah. like eat some PB&Js, eat some watermelon, eat some uh, potato chips. And so each person had a roll and just made it really quick in and out. Um, the, the aid station, um, yeah, the aid station stoppage time is like an area that's really easy to not think about or not account for. Um, when I went to world championships last fall with team USA, yeah, she sent this video around of Zach Miller 
coming into and out of an aid station at the 2018 world championships. And Zach like ran in vest on the floor, picked up another vest, buckled it, ran out. It was like a total of three seconds. That's wild. And it's like, all right, I need to completely change how I approach aid stations. Uh, yeah. So that was the goal. I ended up having two, two uh, aid stations, one where I changed shoes and one after my stomach unfortunately turned where I had to like eat some real food. Uh, so in all, I think I hit somewhere right around 15 or 16 minutes, but would have been cool to be a bit faster. But yeah. Yeah. Dude, ultra running like next level shit is going to be basically like NASCAR. Like you're going to have people who are trained at like tying shoes really fast. Yeah. And you're just going to go and then you're just going to take right off. Because I got the um, <laughs> chance to see Xavier Tavenard, who's a French runner, yeah. when he competed at Hard Rock. And it was actually the year he got um, disqualified. From oh, Hard Rock. man, that was that was rough. Yeah. I saw him at one of the aid stations before that, and he ran in. He just stood there. He did nothing. He stood there, arms out, vest came off, other vest on, sp- uh, spraying anti-chafe on his balls, like under the shorts, <laughs> like sunscreen out. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah. And like hard rock, you know, I think hard rock is a type of race that people expect to have some like couple minute breaks in aid stations yeah. because they've been, they've been out there. Yeah. They've been above 14,000 feet likely between aid stations and to see him come through, be in and out in like six seconds like with a vest change, a new lube, and like yeah. it was. It was I mean, I just can't wait for you to give your crew a nickname for one of those jobs. You know, like the anti-chafe yeah. nickname, the, the fluffer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's well, that's a real role. Um, yeah, man, that was something that really stood out though, because I mean, every second counts, especially it seemed like this year the top 10 were so i mean you can probably speak to it with like having been there obviously but like just from following along online it seemed like the top 10 were all like right bunched together like around each other switching positions throughout um like can you kind of talk about that like what was it like being around your competitors when you are competing you know like so often i know when i run ultras i'm not generally competing most of the time you know and i think i'd actually say until this race i would put my like role in like i am competitive and i typically end up you know in big races maybe the top 10 or yeah like you know smaller field races on the podium or winning like i but i'm this was the first race where it was like i was really putting myself in the mix and like there to compete, not there to run within my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, the big difference being like other races, I'll go out and I'll run within my comfort zone and like slowly kind of like pick people off as the race goes on and attrition like eats away at the competition. I relied on that last year and I it didn't happen. So I was like, I can't rely on that this year. I just need to be like fully in the mix, fully racing all day. I'm going to push myself harder than I have this early in a race at times I'm going to say like, this is crazy that I'm running this fast. I just need to like cool my brain and like, you know, ensure myself that I've trained for this, uh, actually getting to be amongst like some of the best runners in the world and competing with them was really cool. Um, you know, I did not get a bunch of time running like head to head with Tom Evans or Dakota. They went pretty hard off the front but Tyler Green, Anthony Costales, um, and Dan Jones, those were the three guys that I was kind of in the mix with the most. Yeah. Um, the like whole Canyon section of Western States, big descents, big climbs. Uh, you've got three big descents. Well, I guess kind of four big descents and three big climbs. And, uh, you know, Anthony and Tyler were like a switchback and a half up on me. And yeah. Dan Jones was either right with me or like a switchback and a half back. And I kind of like knew where my, where my place was and that like, I just had to keep pushing it. Um, at some point, those little margins you try to like scrape by, by having fast aid stations yeah, goes out the window. 
<laughs> for me, that was mile 80. Yeah. I, um, I did a shoe change. So did Anthony. We were both at Greengate, this aid station at mile 80 at the same time in third place. Um, we both left. I was right on his tail. Half a mile later, I started projectile vomiting. And like, that's never happened to me in a race before. So I think I got a little nervous. Um, retrospectively, I wish I'd just been like, all right, that didn't happen. Keep running. <laughs> I lost a couple of pounds right now, so I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Instead, I was like, huh, Yeah, that's good. Like, how should I address this? And I thought pretty critically about like, I need to like dial things back a little bit. I've got no food in my system. Um, and the food I had with me was clearly like making my stomach upset. So, uh, I ended up running like 10 minute pace, yeah. which at the end of Western States, like 10 minute pace, it's a great pace. It's not a pace that's going to keep you in your position if you're in the top five. Yeah. Um, so my competitors, like looking at my watch, I was like, all right, if I'm running 10 thirties and I have 20 miles to go all of a sudden that 15 minute lead that I had on Jian Chen and Dan Jones who are in fourth and or fifth and sixth. Yeah. Like that lead's gone. Yeah. Like the math is pretty simple. Like I'm about to lose 40 minutes on the pace I've been running over the next 20 miles. And it just became this head game of like, don't get into a negative headspace, try to keep moving, but like move as fast as possible because it's not just fifth place, sixth place, seventh place. That's going to pass you eighth place. Like yeah. I could fall fully out of the top 10 yeah. with the amount of uh, time loss. So it felt really, really cool to compete until yeah. my legs and body kind of reached this point where was, was, was that part of the whole, like, you have to go all in, like you mentioned, like, Hey, I'm not holding back. Like I have to yeah. go all in. And you almost, are you like, when, when you're telling yourself, go, you're going to go all in, do you almost have to accept like, Hey, I'm, there's a chance this, I don't finish because I decided mm -hmm. to go hard. Yeah. And on the spectrum of like what could have happened, the outcome on Saturday, like ending up ninth overall, I guess eighth male and running 1542 at Western States, like that's yeah. a pretty good outcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at mile 80, like just like my stomach ended up going sideways and my legs kind of uh, lost the pep in their step, like moments before that, I felt better than I did all day. And I like also imagining what could have happened if I stood up and like left that aid station and was still feeling that good. It's like, I might've actually been able to run faster. And yeah. like all of a sudden now we're looking at a 15 hour finish, like second or third place, you know, that's why I wanted to be in that position. I think if I'd run conservatively from the start, I, I might've been able to work my way up to top 10 and finish sub 16, but like, I got a taste for what it's like to actually run against the best runners in the world and be toe to toe with them. Um, things did go a little sideways yeah. and I kind of expected that, but the real like point of putting myself out there was I didn't want any expectations for the race because I didn't want to set a goal that was going to put a mental block on my capability um, or my ability. I've never been this fit before. I've always gone into a race being like, I think I can get top five. I think yeah. I can maybe get top 10, like, or I can maybe win this race, but like, maybe I'll run, you know, 340 in a 50 K or like, I, I've always had an idea of what I'm set out to do. And like the whole goal with Western States was just like, forget about all that. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go run. I'm going to compete against the best of the best and what happens happens. Yeah. And like, when I realized I was on pace to run like 15 hours, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is crazy. Like I never once would have guessed I could, you know, actually push a 15 hour pace, you know, a hundred miles in a race, yet alone like 80 miles into a race where I, where I was on that, on that yeah. pace. So, um, I think the, the headspace I was trying to enter, I, I did successfully, you know, enter that. It's just, 
there's only so many like governors that you can override in your body and my it's all brain versus body and my 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 body ended up fooling me with this like projectile vomiting and my brain like the red flashing light just wasn't going off I was yeah like, I override this one like i need food yeah and ended up slowing down yeah well so i'm very interested in this idea of like being an elite athlete and then somehow managing expectations um because you're right it's such a mental battle and if you had expectations of whatever whatever it was maybe like a higher position and then all of a sudden you know you're not going to get that position it might just like totally crash and burn your whole entire thing you know but going in and being like trying to because i'm sure you you had some expectations going in you know yeah but like also trying to like manage it though so it doesn't completely um it's just this i'm always interested in like the mental battles athletes have and to be an elite athlete 15 hours into a race trying to like handle the battle in your brain just has to be a weird experience you know yeah. And I, I guess expectations and goals, like I, maybe I was using those words slightly differently. Like yeah. I wanted to end up on the podium. Yeah. I wanted to win the race. Like, yeah. And I just like, I didn't want to tell myself winning the race was out of the question. It yeah. wasn't going to happen. I didn't want to tell myself like podium, that's too much of a stretch for you, Jeff, that you're not going to be able to do that. Um, Sub 15, like that's too much of a stretch. Like I had no idea actually like what I was capable of with the fitness I had. I knew that I changed a lot of things from my race last year and I put the best foot forward I could on the starting line on, uh, on Saturday. So yeah, I'm like, all right, like, I don't, I don't want to start like, you know, dr dreaming of a narrative of like, wow, I'm going to be the first guy to go like sub 14. Like I'm not trying to be delusional, but yeah. Like I, I'm also like, I don't want to put any, you know, like tether on what I'm actually able to do. Yeah. Cause like, why don't I just go out and see what I can do? Like, why don't I, why don't I go do, you know, something and, and at least get a flavor for, um, you know, what it's like to compete at that level. Yeah. What did you, did you pick up any, um, like, did you learn anything from the other top guys? Like even maybe not something you talked about with them, but maybe just like watching their races. Uh, I think I like, I felt like Tyler, Anthony and I were actually running really similar races until about mile 80. Um, when I came in to that aid station, like Anthony looked like he was hurting and I was feeling really good. And, you know, in my mind, like, Anthony had been pushing the downhills harder, which often will blow up your quads more and make yeah. it harder to run the flats. And I'd been pushing the uphills harder. Um, Tyler had been pushing the uphills harder. Tom Evans, the winner of the race, he ran a perfect race. Like he ran yeah. exceptionally well. He was in control the entire time. Uh, but like from the get go, kind of, I mean, we are group came into mile 30 like pretty close together yeah and he and dakota jones ran together until about mile 68 or so where dakota like hit a wall and fell off pretty pretty seriously but yeah tom tom ran a like commanding race from from the get-go and uh was like really impressive win yeah i think uh maybe the person i learned like the biggest lesson from was courtney yeah. Um, you know, I was looking back at some splits. Courtney just like chilled a little bit longer. I think the guys, when we like got through the snow, we started moving faster um, through the canyons, you know, started moving a little bit faster. But my splits and Courtney's splits were the exact same, kind of like through the two major climbs in the canyons, basically up until the, the 100K at Forest Hill. And then she just took off. Like, yeah. That's like crazy, man. Yeah. Um, she ran faster than me on, you know, every split from Forest Hill to the finish. And she ran faster than everyone except for really 
Tom Evans um, on every every split. Like she ran exceptionally well, and to have that much left in the tank for the most runnable section. Um, you know, last year I came into it. There's three sections of the Western states. And this is like the easiest way to break up this race into your head. It's it's a high country section where there could be snow. It's definitely the most technical section of the whole course. Yeah. There's rocks, there's roots. It feels like a proper, you know, like Colorado. Yeah. Trail race. You were probably uh, ready for that. Like all that snow, you were probably like, yes, this is perfect. <laughs> it was so perfect. It was really <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm a skier, so I really like the snow. Yeah. So there's the first third, which is the high country. The high country ends at Robinson Flats. From Robinson Flats until, um, you know, Forest Hill, that is the canyon section. And that's these like big, hot, um, you know, climbs and descents. So it's kind of that combination of like big descent, big climb, big descent, big climb, big descent, big climb. And then from Forest Hill to the finish, it's a 16 mile downhill followed by a bit of a climb, but mostly it's just all runnable and you yeah. need to be able to run on that final third. And yeah. like, I knew that this year also, I just shot my shot and turns out my running legs were toast when it came down to that, like, you need to be able to run at this section section. Yeah. I was having a really hard time getting anything faster than, you know, 10 minute miles from my legs. And that should be the fastest part of the whole course. Um, so when Courtney passed by me, she was like, come on, Jeff. Like, I didn't want to see you, but here I am. Like, let's go hop on this train. Like we're, we're, we're going to get it. Yeah. And, uh, I like turned to my pacer and I was like, Peter, like, can we hop on this train? And he was like, no, dude, I can't really keep up with her right now. And like, you can't keep up with me. So <laughs> that train just like took off. They were um, like, this train is going way too fast for us yeah, right now. Her train yeah. was bound for glory for sure. Um, so I think that the fact that like you can, you can still make up so much time on that last third of the race. Um, Courtney didn't change her shoes at all. I think all of the top guys changed their shoes at one point. Yeah. Um, I had to change my shoes right after the river crossing. Like I went into the river and submerged and my shoes just like filled with muck. Yeah. Um, so part of me is like, Oh, if I could like do it again, maybe I wouldn't go in the river. Um, but yeah, man. Do you think, I mean, so I know a little bit about, um, last year, so last year you showed up, you had some issues beforehand. Uh, so you weren't like at a hundred percent and you got 11th, which yeah. is absolutely like, can you talk a little bit about that? And then how that affected your mindset for this year? For sure. I, I think last year I didn't get to race. I like, I showed up, I'd had COVID up until two days before the race. I decided to race anyway. My respiratory system was messed up. Like I didn't feel comfortable really having my heart rate spike above mm, yeah. kind of like 140 and it was a hotter year too. So like all of these things compounded to just, it was a day that I put down a really solid effort. Um, that effort wasn't good enough to get top 10. And I think I've always known like in my head, if I can get to Western States, I can get top 10. So that was the real like resounding goal last year to come just shy part of me was like screw this race i'm never coming back uh the other part of me was like i need to go back i need to go back with like you know a completely different plan and like totally different training and really like go for it and get the race that i know i'm capable of i think this year's race was a lot closer to what i'm capable of but having that taste for like i can go so much faster or I can, yeah. I can compete right in the mix so much better, um, does leave a little bit more to be desired, which is, is a good thing. It's good to be hungry. Yeah. Um, last year that like M 11, that 11th place finish, it like, it ate me up a good bit. You know, I was tormented of like, how, like, how did I end up here? And Quite frankly, I should have had more grace considering I was quite sick beforehand. Yeah. Um, 
I think afterwards the race just like took a serious toll on my body too. And the recovery was hard. So going back this year and going into the race, being like, all right, I'm not sick. Like all these things feel uh, like, you know, it could be a good day. I think before the race, part of this like whole, you know, me calling my shot of like, I want to try to podium or I want to, you know, hunt for a cougar and try to win the race. It's like, I'm not looking like to, at that time, I was like, I'm not looking to come back to Western States next year. I'm not trying to get a conservative top 10. So I have an entry. Um, I want to see what I can do. And I know how good this field is. I really wanted to like race them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely a different headspace, definitely very different intentions. And I did end up landing in the top 10. And now I'm like, well, at least I don't have to go the golden ticket route and like spend my winter figuring out what race. How are you going to get in? Yeah. So like, there's no way I'm going to count out Western States for next year, like at this point, but it was a different, like different expectations and pressure around like, I'm cool with not coming back next year. If that's the reality, if yeah. I end up going for it and I can't end up even finishing, like I'm happy. I'll be happy that I went for it. Cause I want to know. And, uh, after that race, I feel like I know like, all right, when I race, I should be trying to win. And this is the mindset of yeah. racing. Yeah, dude, that's so cool, man. Oh, that's so cool. Like, I just think like to be able to have that, that experience, like so many, people don't get the chance to have, you know, like even to be in the mix is something most people dream of. And yeah, it's just awesome. It was a total trip. It was really cool. (laughs) Um, Dude, I want to ask you a little bit about like how you even got into this crazy sport, you know what I mean? And um, so here's a couple things I know just based off a little research, New Hampshire, white mountains sounds amazing it's on my bucket list like i've always wanted to go there i've always wanted to experience those mountains and um go out there and then the other thing i wanted to bring up is ski jumping because i've been doing this podcast for like almost man it's like almost six or seven years at this point and i don't think i've ever at like been able to talk to anybody about ski jumping and that is mind-blowing to me so yeah Awesome, Chris. Well, yeah. So (laughs) I grew up in New Hampshire. My brother and sister were both big skiers. I'm the youngest of three. And for me, I kind of just followed in footsteps. And those footsteps for my brother and sister both like got them into Hershey track and field at a young age competing in track. Never was like huge fan of track, but my brother started running junior Olympic cross country when he was like 10. So at age seven. (laughs) No way distance running. And, you know, my first races were three kilometer races. We'd go on like 5k, you know, fun runs on, uh, Thanksgiving and whatnot. And I always just loved the expression of running through the woods, like running on trails. Um, never as fond of like running on roads or running on the track, but, uh, parallel to our childhood growing up, running and competing and running was all things skiing. So we grew up in a family, like there's a time in high school where I had 15 to 17 ski practices or competitions a week. No way. Like between Nordic skiing, ski jumping and Alpine ski racing, I trained for Alpine every day, unless I had like a big Nordic race. Yeah. Ski jumping always happened in the evenings. So it might be, all right, I've got like uh ski practice until 6 p.m. And then I'd go ski jumping, you know, 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. or so. Um, a day or two of Nordic training in there. And like it was really uh all skiing all the time. And I was a really small kid. Like I didn't hit a hundred pounds until sophomore year of high school. That's a good place to be if you want yeah. to be a ski jumper um ski jumping is all about kind of like how floaty are you yeah and lighter things float better so i got the opportunity to compete um for you know the northeast in junior olympics for ski jumping and the first year that was actually in new hampshire 
the second year that was out in Park City. And yeah, worked my way up to getting to jump on the 90 meter hills, which that's the like the small hill for the Olympics is a 90 yeah. meter. Uh, and it's crazy. There's a reason it's called the the original extreme sport. Um, you know, you go off the jump and you are fully You're like flying, flying like, dude. Yeah. Little, little <laughs> movements of your arms, like reposition your body in the air. Um, and yeah, February 15th, 2009, the day after I found out I got into college, I was at us nationals for ski jumping and I was the first jumper of the day. And I went off the jump. I was leaning way out over my skis. Cause there was a good headwind that headwind stopped. I leaned too far. No way. Landed on my head. And, um, I ended up getting like just a compression fracture in my L4, L5 and my lower spine and knocking myself out, getting like a really solid concussion. Um, by the time I like came to, I was already on a like stretcher, like going to, uh, the ambulance. And that was kind of the end of my ski jumping. That's and, dude. I never even thought about that. What you just said was like the idea of like, there's a wind in your face. So you're leaning into it. Yeah. Then the wind can randomly stop. That's wild, man. I've never like, as someone who's never, you know, most of us haven't done that sport before. Yeah. And so to even think about that is crazy. It's just like when you're a kid or an adult, when you're a curious human and you put your hand out the window. Oh, dude, wait, you... time out real quick. That's in my top three things I'd do if like an alien came down to earth and was like, you have to show me how cool this experience is or we're going to destroy your planet. I'm like, get in the car, roll the window down, hand Put out the, the hand down. <laughs> so when you're like this, you're, you're getting pushed down. Yeah. You know, when your fingers are slightly up. You're kind of like just, yeah. but if you open up too much, you're getting blown back. And there's this certain point where like you have that perfect loft yeah. and your, your hand just wants to like kind of take off. And that's the same feeling, but like, imagine you're, you know, you're right at that point, you're feeling like you're taking off. And then, yeah, that air just stops and stops. And like the weight <sighs> is such that you end up just tumbling. Yeah. Um, is there any part of you that misses that feeling or not after that accident? So, I don't know about ski jumping. Like I definitely miss it. It's yeah. a, like there are, you know, maybe 200 or 300 youth ski jumpers in the country. Maybe the program's grown. It's a pretty niche sport. Yeah. And it's an exceptional feeling, but I think there's a reason most young kids are the ones getting into ski jumping. Mm. There is like a switch in your head. That's like, this is a dumb idea. <laughs> that's the prefrontal cortex. Finally, right? like, I shouldn't be doing this. And you need to get so accustomed to ski jumping, like, and sending yourself off these hills before yeah. you know, that fully develops. So it's like, no, this is normal. I'm pretty cool with this. Um, I think like, be keen on getting out and skydiving or, or, you know, feeling that, uh, that like intense air again, but I still am an avid skier and like, yeah. I like going off jumps. I like, you know, dropping little cliffs and skiing fast. And I get, I get most of my, my, uh, my kicks from, from Alpine skiing now. Yeah. That's awesome. Man. And you're in a great spot for it in Carbondale. Yeah. It's a good spot. Heck yeah, dude. How often are you out on the slopes? Like in the winter? So I work full time in the ski industry. So I um I design ski boot liners and work okay. at kind of building this ski boot liner brand. Yeah. And um end up probably being on snow maybe like around 40 or 45 days a winter or so. Not quite as much as I, you know, would hope getting into the ski industry and thinking like, oh, I'm working in the ski industry. I'm gonna be on <laughs> snow all the time. Turns out you still gotta work a good bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I'm, you know, frame my whole winter around, around access to skiing. And that's like one of those things as I prepared for this race that it's like, all right, like the last day I skied before the race, like I went ski touring up in Washington on May 20th. And it was like that hard line of like, we're not skiing within a month of the race. Like yeah. we need to shift the focus on running, but I do think there's a lot of value and I find a lot of joy in being a multi-sport athlete and finding like 
other activities other than just running that I can do to focus on and uh, like still build a lot of fitness and cardiovascular strength by like ski touring and riding my bike. Uh, and it's not as impactful on my knees. So I yeah. try to work that type of cross training just like into my, into my life and not make it feel like training at all. It's actually like, those are the things I love to do. So it feels like living. Yeah, man. That's cool. I, if people aren't in Colorado, I bet where you are, how many days are you, are you able to ski is probably like the question people ask even before, like, what do you do for work? It's like, you meet someone for the first time, like how many days are you out here? You know? <laughs> yeah. There's like a hundred day pin for the skiers who <laughs> get a hundred days a season. And yeah. Like, yeah. That would be cool to get some year, but it's not, it's not right now for me. No, uh, no. There's no. other things going on. And yeah, I like, I like versatility in that. Yeah. When was the first big like ultra race? Like when did you first take, take it on? So I, uh, as I mentioned, like ran all through childhood and high school and I started working up in the white mountains in 2010. So there's an Appalachian mountain club is the largest, you know, like, um, non-for-profit, like hiking organization or outdoor organization in the country. And they manage a bunch of trails all up the East coast. Yeah. In the white mountains, they have eight hike to huts that operate, um, as like full service backcountry facilities. So there's a crew there that cooks you dinner. They like, you know, kind of provide naturalist or talks. There's, you know, there's programming for adults and kids. And then in the morning it's breakfast and stuff. And then you hike on your way. I worked on the crew for those huts um, from 2010 to 2016. And that culture around the AMC huts, like the AMC, the White Mountains, in so many ways, that's where hiking in the US really started. Yeah. And as hiking naturally evolved into mountain and trail running that also really was catalyzed in the white mountains. Um, so there's this thing called the hut traverse, which connects the easternmost hut and the westernmost hut. And you run, you know, 46 miles and 18,000 or 17,000 feet of climbing or whatnot yeah. across the mountains that, uh, it's kind of like indoctrination. You know, if you're a strong hut kid, you're going to go try to link up all the huts in one fell swoop and run it in 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, for less than a day. And I showed up like with a running background and way too cocky for my own good at age 20. <laughs> and uh, it was like, oh, like there's like a record on this. Like I'm going to go for it. And yeah, it was so arrogant. I decided to do it on hike naked day and go for it completely naked. And uh, I learned a lot about chafing that day. <laughs> that I've carried with me in all my ultra races since, but that was and, my, first... and you might as well learn about that day one, you know? Yeah. That yeah. was my first run over, uh, over a marathon distance. I'd done a couple like road marathons with friends before that. And that I only made it 36 miles before things were too ripe to continue going on. Um, so it kind of planted the seed couple years later, I tried it again, still didn't get like the result I was looking at for. And I had stopped running cross country in college at that point and was more like, I really just like looking at these maps and like trying to find appealing link ups. Yeah. That, you know, when you're living in these huts in the mountains, you have the same trails that you probably hike a bunch. But if you just shift your paradigm to like, all right, I'm actually going to be running all of a sudden these trails, like you can do these big, beautiful loops and get to see, you know, different rivers, waterfalls and whatnot. So it really like was born out of just looking at maps and being like, I want to go a little bit further, a little bit further. And, um, a friend of mine was like, well, you know, there's a 50 K in Maine, um, that I'm going to do like in the fall, you should go do that. And that was in 2016. And that was the first like ultra race I did. Um, and I ended up winning it. It was not a great execution, but it was like a, we got it done. Yeah. Good, good lesson. in like how far 31 miles actually is. You were clothed um, this time, correct? I was clothed. Yeah. I wore <laughs> clothes. Step one. <laughs> um, about a month after that, I moved to Carbondale. 
And oh no way! Okay. So my my first taste of running ultras was back in uh, in New Hampshire and Maine, and then when I moved to Carbondale, the setting and the scene in Colorado, I'm sure as you know, it's way more race focused. Yeah. Um, there aren't that many races in the Northeast, so like people aren't building their like summer calendars around like all of these different races they could do. They're definitely not building winter calendars around races they can do because there's not a Utah or an Arizona like adjacent. I came out here and I was just like, oh my God, there's races everywhere all the time. And it kind of like planted me in the spot to be like, I want to pursue, you know, trying to like become a professional or sponsored runner in a way that like brands and races would want to pay for me to go to their races and kind of as a means to get to travel the world. Um, So it's like fresh out of college, had no money, had a pile of debt. It's like, this is a great time to travel, but like, how am I going to afford to do that? And, yeah. and ultra running seemed like a potential solution. That's cool, man. How do you um, prevent yourself from just signing up for races like every single weekend? Uh, I've like definitely moved past that. Okay. I think like saying it would be cool to get to race a little bit more. Um, yeah. And maybe next year I get to lean into shorter races and race more, you know, half marathon, 50 K like 50 mile is kind of the far, far reach, but especially running hundred milers, like so much of the focus needs to be just this like steady long buildup. And, um, I've actually got another hundred miler in September so I can keep my eligibility for hard rock. So which one's that? I'm kind of deciding right now between Wasatch and UTMB. Okay. Um, So both would be really exciting. Both have really appealing, uh, competition that I'd love to love to get to run with but yeah the like I've never run 200s in a single calendar year I already raced 100k in January Bandera to get my golden ticket oh yeah I raced 50K in April I did I that raced. one with you by the way just peeping, peeping on your ultra sign up yeah <laughs> nice yeah I nice. was signed up for the 100k um but oh, and they, crazy they torrential downpour so yeah 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 um man that's spoiler such alert <laughs> such a beautiful zone that yeah. whole area where we were just climbing like oh it's dude like, i mean levels it was yeah. in levels like to the max it was so cool and you can look back and see every trail you've ran that whole entire day i i mean i don't know how much you've talked to your cousin andrea but like i'm kind of obsessed with the trails out there um nice. there's this stage race that goes through the whole cocopelli and it is like legitimately my favorite spot in the world and the trails there are just like i don't know just mind-blowingly beautiful in completely different different ways you know so um and i had never been to the desert like i'm from iowa so i'd never been to a desert really before moving out here and then i get to go out to fruta and just see that area and i'm like whoa this is awesome it's so cool colorado river just like right there just yeah drop off Um, oh man but yes you you probably uh were sitting at the aid station for hours and hours before before i showed up (laughs) um well yeah that that ended up being like that was a really fun day fun race cool temperatures i thought that was going to be kind of heat training but yeah um so like western states you know i guess i did a, a half marathon like road race in there as well um Western States was like kind of my, you know, fourth race already this year. And to do another hundred, like five or six races in a year is about kind of where I like max out at least with what I'm willing to yeah. lean into. Um, I, like, as I mentioned, I have a full-time job, like I have friendships and like relationships and yeah. other parts of my life that I really want to like give as much attention to as my running and like, I know there's some people who are all in on running and it's live or breathe. Like when they're sleeping, they're at 10,000 feet or they're in an altitude tent. And when they're training, they're in the perfect training spots. And like, they're trying to optimize in every way. Like I'm trying to optimize in every way too, but like, I'm trying to just optimize life in every way. Yeah. And, uh, not just my running and like running is a core part of who, who I am. Like, I'm not going to shy away from that, but so is skiing. Like 
I really love gardening. Yeah. My dog's really great. My fiance is really great. I've got like this amazing community and family. And the second it feels like I'm compromising any of those other parts of my life for, you know, this, this single dream, I at least want to ask myself, like, are you sure? Are you sure about this? Like, you know, check yourself. Um, and like, maybe that's like, all right, I need to skip like this friend's wedding because it's coming right into the runway for this race. Like, that's a hard one. I really love this friend. Like, but maybe like if I've spent five months training for this race, like that's a decision like that I might make and feel justified in making it. Uh, however, it's not like, oh, like I'm not going to see anyone and like be around my people. Um, you know, at the, the risk of like any slight fatigue or whatnot, like there's, there's so much more in life than just competing and running. And, uh, I well, and to speak to it like too, like color. happiness and balance, like kind of can give you an advantage too, you know, like, I think so. I, I certainly like, I very much believe in willpower and just the power of connected thought and like feel my community so much at my back when I'm doing these races, it's incredibly moving. It's like hard to put into words, but there's no doubt in my mind that all of these people are there with me and I just have to actively think about them. And instead of thinking about that rock I kicked and like the pain in my left quad, it's just like my 92 year old grandmother is sitting at home watching me race right now. And like, she is with me and like, she's seen some shit. And like my stepdad, my mom, like all these people who couldn't be there with me in person, they are with me. And like, it just ends up being kind of, you know, wind at my back. And um, so I think the balance thing is very real. Personally, I do think happiness is like something worth fighting for. Um, There's a amazing runner, Jack Kenzel who like was on one podcast talking, he he just got the speed record on Denali a couple of weeks back. And he was like, at one point I thought that there was happiness and I thought that there was my training and then it was a Venn diagram and there was some overlap, but I've completely separated them now. And I know that's not true. My training is like, you know, what I need to focus on. And that's what I want to focus on right now in my life. And like, I heard that and I was just like, Jack, I have so much respect for you, but like, that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where we all find our own individual journey through this. You know, I mean, even being an elite athlete, everyone in the top 10 on last Saturday, like everybody trained differently. Everyone has a different perspective and different philosophies and you just kind of have to find what works for you. And I think that's part of like the whole journey. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the like goal for me whether I'm towing a starting line or just like getting up, just like, you know, be the best version of myself I can be and try to spread good. Like, but first and foremost, like think holistically about Jeff as a human and think about future Jeff and how your decisions now might, might impact future Jeff. And like, that's the kind of like headspace I try to maintain and, and, and live within. Um, so Sometimes that means, yeah, compromising some training if I need to help a friend or yeah. do, something, uh, do something that comes up. Yeah. Uh, but there's such a, like the real balance comes in when like, if you're getting stressed about things, trying to layer more on top of them, that's when things kind of go haywire. And like, if my job's stressful, if my, uh, you know, like, life is stressful with a friend or whatnot in some given way. Like I'm not going to go solve that by running really hard. In fact, like my endocrine system's kind of spiking. Like I probably want to dial back my training a little bit and make sure I'm getting good sleep, eating and drinking well. And like maybe move that workout to another day because like it's for me, it's not the, the right response to like respond to stress or, hardship by like kind of beating myself into the ground. No, man, that's not, that doesn't seem like that's going to work. And I'm sure 
just speaking for myself, but maybe for a lot of people who are in into ultra running, I've definitely done that. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> then, well, we've been there. We everyone's done it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's tempting to do, but you do have to like kind of resist that temptation. You know, um, I wanted to ask you really quick to wrap up. Uh, just this is a completely selfish question, but like when you're out in Carbondale, I was saying my cousin lives in Basalt, so I'm out there uh, every so often. What are your what are some like, I don't know, awesome places to train there? I just I know I my cousin's neighbors like I'm going for a trail run. Do you want to come? I'm like, sure, man. And we did this one. Uh, it was like Arbany. Arbany Kittle. Yeah, Arbany Arbany Kittle. one of the best trails to train on probably anywhere and like yeah there are some people who have gotten incredibly fit including world trail champions uh a couple of them like by running arbany kittle um, and that's what i wanted to say hit my his neighbor just starts running it and it is straight up like yeah, straight see. up and then it's not only that but like going down it was straight straight down too straight so down, i was like yeah. i don't know if i can run any of this <laughs> yeah yeah there's some amazing spots right around uh right around basalt basalt's a great spot because you've got such access to the frying pan yeah. and you get up toward rudai like the rudai overlook trail that brings you up to red table mountain and that's just this massive mesa that overlooks the entire frying pan valley all the way over toward like eagle it's so beautiful so there's some there's some nice long run loops you can do up there um light hill is right in basalt and that's a really excellent uh excellent resource there's it's steep basalt actually has like the steepest trails in the valley all kind of leave yeah. right from basalt but if you get up on top of the crown which is just below sopras that's kind of above the prince creek area um i've likely run in the ballpark of 200 300 times up on those trails yeah and i still haven't run all the trails wow there's, like there's just a, a lot of different ways you can piece it together yeah. um it's it's a really beautiful zone and yeah then obviously like aspen's aspen because it has four wilderness areas surrounding it you know a lot of people are like, you live in Aspen or like you live near Aspen. Like I wouldn't picture that for you. I'm like, oh, I don't do anything in the town. Like, but there's amazing access all, you know, all right from the town. Yeah. Which makes it a pretty special place to be. Oh yeah, man. The Maroon Bells. I know it's like the most photographed spot in Colorado. And there's always like 8,000 people standing at that lake taking the same picture. But at the same time, it's, I understand why, you know, you're just like, your we, mind is kind of blown by what those mountains look like. Yeah. We kind of refer to the maroon bells as our sacrificial lamb. It's perfect because it keeps everyone from it does not like concentrated right there. And yeah. then the rest of the mountains are still totally open. I mean, and once you leave, once you go like a mile up that trail at the maroon bells, like you don't see anybody again and you're like, yeah. all right problem solved. me and my buddy uh hiked one of we did south maroon and i just remember waking up and leaving his car and we start going by that lake and it's dark out so we have headlamps on and there's already like 200 people standing there like photographers and it looked like a zombie movie for a second because no one was saying anything it was silent yeah. and there's just 200 people just standing there and we're like whoa what is going on that is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great place to be. The Elk Mountains are really special. Um, shame on me. I still haven't made it to Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, I actually haven't made it to any of Colorado's <laughs> national parks. Um, I really like these mountains and just end up staying, staying put. Dude, uh, it's not even shame on you at all. I like, guess completely yeah. understandable. <laughs> but next time you're up, definitely, uh, definitely let me know. There's a lot of, a lot of good zones to explore yeah man i would love that i would love that jeff where can people kind of like follow along follow your your further adventures and and root yeah. for you like i said i was rooting for you all weekend and it was really cool to kind of like be able to go on instagram and like follow along so thanks chris um yeah just before the race i i made my first ever like youtube video just kind of about the headspace i was going into that race with and some of my training so um jeff colt 
on on YouTube, but then uh, easy underscore dog on Instagram, easy dog, and I think Jeff Colt on Twitter and um, and Strava as well. But yes, I do, uh, yeah, I'm super grateful with folks who are following along because again, that community is like just so fundamental to um, to the support and success I find out there. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I'll link all that stuff in the show notes and uh, really highly suggest people checking that out. But once again, man, just congrats. Like what a beautiful, wonderful weekend and experience you were able to have. So good job, dude. I'm excited to see what happens uh, from here on, you know? Yeah, we'll see. Another hundred race coming right up, but I, I really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks so much. Awesome. All right. That wraps up this week's episode with Jeff Colt. Uh, huge thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I had an absolute blast um, hearing your stories, learning from you. Uh, and I hope everyone out there enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Uh, please check out all of his stuff. Um, and, you know, from here on out, I'm a huge fan. So all of these hundred milers coming up for him, all these big races that he's going to be training for, taking on over the next few months but also the next few years like i'm i'm rooting for him uh and i think i think he's gonna have an absolute incredible career dude is an absolute beast um as shown by the last two years at western states and also maybe the first person i've interviewed on the podcast who's like yeah my first attempt at an ultra mountain trail run was completely in the nude and I learned very quickly that chafing is a thing that happens. And it happens, especially when, when things are left free to the wind, to the world. And uh, yeah, sounded painful. Sounded very painful. Plus like East Coast humidity, plus chafing, plus flopping around just uh just just sounds like a it's like a you put that in a stew in a chafe stew you know what i mean like that's gonna result in a in a straight up chafe stew which <laughs> is i think is a term i'm coining right now which is disgusting so uh that part fascinated me obviously like i was interested in the um the idea of ski jumping you know like that's that's mind blowing. It's such a crazy sport and you watch it. It's one of those things where I think rowing is like this also in the Olympics, the, uh, when you see the Olympics or like the, uh, Olympic qualifiers or things like when they put ski jumping or a sport like rowing on TV, you're seeing the best of the best and you're watching these people who are just masterful at it and it can almost make it like you'd almost don't respect the sport as much because they make it look so easy. You know, like when I've interviewed people who are rowers on the podcast before, you realize just how incredibly hard and precise that sport has to be. And yet you're watching on TV and they're just making it look like no big deal. Same with ski jumping. Like they just make it look like so beautiful and so perfect um, with their jumps that you almost forget like, what an insane thing they're doing and like what a challenging thing um ski jumpers are doing uh my wife and i always laugh like when we were watching the olympics we we're like they should put like next to the pro athletes they should put like just a regular old dude like trying to do the sport so the like all of us sitting at home can like realize how difficult it is you know like if they had me out there trying to row like a boat versus these like elite teams you would see very quickly that i suck at it and then you'd realize most of us probably aren't good at this <laughs> um you know as you would see me for like two seconds and then the rest of the team would row on by um anyways olympic committee if you're out there that's an idea take it or leave it but I'm putting that idea out there. You're free to have it. Uh, called regular person does the Olympics by Olympic athletes. You know, you would you would see how terrible uh, most. I can I can do all of the events too. If you want me to be the regular person, I'm submitting my name right now. Any sport, figure skating. You know that would be interesting. 
uh i'm sure I'd, it it would really be a total like how quickly can chris get hurt doing any of these sports and it would be pretty much instantly in all of them i think um but yeah, anyways, that wraps up this week's episode of the Like Bigfoot podcast. We are going to come back at you next week. We have a whole bunch of really cool interviews coming up. Um, we definitely, this summer, I was noticing this, like I went full in on ultra running on a lot of these recent episodes, which is really fun, super entertaining. The next few are going to be about it as well. Um, and I tried to make it a little bit, you know, like throwing in bits and pieces of other things in there. Uh, but I'm also excited uh, hopefully in a few weeks, I'm reaching out to some folks who do adventures in kind of different ways and things like that, because, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by, by that as well. So, um, we'll see, hopefully I can get some really cool folks on the show. Um, yeah, but we'll get back at you next week.